0: Hi, my name is Trinity, and welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a -a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through church history to find the answer. Here on Kids Talk Church History. On March 9th, 1522, some people met for dinner at the home of Christoph Frauscher, a printer from Zurich, Switzerland. It was a dinner to be remembered. In fact, a dinner that made history, it was a season of Lent, a period of 40 days before Easter, when Christians who lived in Western Europe were supposed to avoid eating meat as a sign of sorrow for their sins. But what did the Frauscher serve? Sausages. Find out what happens next in this exciting episode of Kids Talk Church History. I'm Trinity I'm 16. I live in
1: Charleston, South Carolina.
2: And I'm Christian. I'm 14 and I live in Charleston, South Carolina.
1: I'm Linus. I'm 13 and I live in San Diego, California.
2: Okay, so what happened to all those people in the story?
0: Well, in those days, breaking church laws was a crime. So they all went to jail.
1: Shouldn't they have known that they would go to jail or why would they eat the sausages?
0: I read that Frauschner was concerned that his employees, who were with him at dinner, were exhausted after finishing a long printing job and needed some good nourishment. Also, Frauschner didn't think eating sausages was a sin because the Bible doesn't tell us not to eat meat during Lent. In fact, it doesn't even talk about Lent.
2: But did they ever get out of jail?
0: I'm not entirely sure about that. But a priest named Ulrich Zwingli was present at the dinner, but didn't eat the sausages, spoke from the pulpit in the Frausher's defense. He said that even if the Jews fasted on certain occasions, God never made it mandatory, and the church should not impose any rules that God never made. Other people were already thinking that way, so they liked Zwingli's sermon, and soon a reformation started in Zurich.
1: That was only five years after Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the church in Wittenberg if Zwingli had given that sermon earlier, we might celebrate the Reformation by eating sausages on March 9th. Yeah, we
0: can still do that. Um, I think this episode is going to air on February 12th, and so there's still time for our listeners to organize a sausage fest in Froshner's and Zwingli's honor.
1: February 12th is also close to Valentine's Day, but I don't think it really coincides with this.
0: Yeah, actually Zwingli married before Martin Luther did at a time when he was still considered a Roman Catholic priest, so many people gossiped about him. But his wife, Anna Reinhard deserves an episode, too, because she was a widow with three kids when she met Zwingli and was soon left a widow again with three more kids. And so she had six altogether. But she worked a lot to support the Reformation in Zurich. And I read that one of her daughters, Regula, opened her home to refugees who came from England to escape persecution from Queen Mary.
2: And that's a story for another time, right?
1: I think that regula means rule in Latin.
0: Yeah, that's kind of an unusual
1: name. But then again, mine is also unusual. Mine doesn't sound usual either. But anyway, I've never met anyone named rule.
2: I've only heard about Zwingli when our pastor explained different views of the Lord's Supper.
1: Yeah, Zwingli actually
0: disagreed with Luther on the Lord's Supper. Luther didn't follow the Roman Catholic teaching that the bread and wine actually became the body and blood of Christ, but he still thought that Jesus was present with the bread and wine. We can ask your
1: expert to explain it because it's a little complicated. I know that uh, Luther and Zwingli met each other and that they agreed on pretty much everything except for the Lord's Supper.
2: Yes, and then Zwingli died young, so then they couldn't discuss that anymore.
1: He died in a battle, right?
2: Yeah. He, as a chaplain, that's like a pastor for the troops.
1: We have a chaplain at our church at the time of this recording. He's in Japan. So
0: do we. Um, but we also have a lot of questions about Zingli. We, are, um, we have a great expert to help us. We have Reverend William Buchestein, pastor of Emanuel Fellowship Church in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and author of a lot of books, including two on Zwingli. He actually, he's actually the father of one of our Kids Talk Church history hosts, Mina. Reverend Buchestein, thank you so much for taking the time to join our podcast.
3: Well, thanks for the invitation. I'm really glad to be with you. You you guys all listed your ages. I don't have to mention mine, do I? <laughs>
0: No. Okay. no, you don't. You're, you're good. <laughs> um, so you've heard our short conversation about Zwingli. Do you have anything that you would like to correct or maybe add to that?
3: Well, I noticed that you've picked up a lot more knowledge about Zwingli than I certainly had at, at your age. So I think there's a wonderful part of partly what you're doing is contributing to um and an increase in the knowledge of church history among young people, which is fantastic. I didn't know too much about uh, church history as a kid. I didn't uh, grow up in a family where it was important or in a church where history was very important. So um, you're doing a fantastic job. Thanks so much for your work. In fact, I um, before I before when I was asked to start writing these books on Zwingli, I didn't know... Uh, as much or much more than what you've just mentioned. And so he is sort of, I think, one of the forgotten uh, persons of the Reformation. He's known in name and for a few highlights, like you've mentioned. But I think his life, for several reasons, is not nearly as well known. But I'm looking forward to discussing his life with you throughout the course of this podcast.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for um, your support of our podcast. We really appreciate it. Um, We didn't say too much about Zwingli's life because you're the one who's done all the research about him. Can you give us another short summary of his life?
3: Yeah, so I think it might be helpful to introduce Zwingli in connection with the two other names that are often um, added to his when we think about the early Reformation. Um, So Calvin and Luther are often mentioned in connection uh, with Zwingli. Um, so but but you have to distinguish Luther and Zwingli from Calvin uh, as as being earlier than him. So Calvin is a second generation reformer. He was still a kid. He was about eight years old when Luther and Zwingli were reforming in Germany and Switzerland. And so he has the privilege of sort of being able to build on the foundation of the earlier reformers, which is one of the reasons I think. Uh, that Calvin's writing is so so refined and and has stood the test of time much better, uh, for example, than Zwingli's writings have. Um, I I was shocked to read that uh, Zwingli wrote so hastily that he often never would reread what he had written before sending it to the publisher, which is just shocking for me to think about. I mean, uh, Zwingli never did that. So his writings are very hasty. He was extremely busy. He was uh, involved in a lot of controversy. And so we don't remember Zwingli as much for his writings. People don't read Zwingli the same way that they read Calvin, but um, partly because he's a first generation reformer. So Luther and Zwingli, they are much closer connected. They were born just two months apart from each other. Uh, only about four hundred miles from each other they both spoke German. They both received a similar uh classical education zwingli uh in the church uh rather took came into the church uh from the world of academics where as Luther was uh a monk and came into the church in that way so um yeah, Zwingli served just a, a a few years in a couple of small parishes uh, before taking the position of pastor at the largest church in Zurich, which is the capital of the Confederacy of Switzerland, where he served the rest of his life. So he serves in a very prestigious uh, location where he's highly influential in the church, but also in um, the broader culture of of Switzerland. He begins when he comes to Zurich, he begins by just teaching through the Bible at the beginning of, uh, I think it was Matthew, and just working his way through. And that was unusual, but people began to flock to the church to hear the Bible opened up rather than um, passages from the church fathers or sermons that were hard for people to understand. They were in his language. And uh, sort of like Luther, Zwingli had a, a pretty um, I think Earthy way of communicating he he didn't try to appeal to the scholar but to uh, make himself known to the children and to the the older people the uneducated as well as the educated so he begins to bear fruit uh in Zurich or uh, probably right away around 1520 or so uh, and then uh only pastors there for a little over 10 years before he's killed in uh a confrontation between one of the other catholic one of the catholic states in switzerland um so he's really only a, what what could be considered a reformer for uh you know fif- 15 or or 14 years and that's the other reason i think why his legacy is less well uh preserved and less well known because just the shortness of his reforming life but within that short life a lot of action uh, uh a lot of Um, a a lot of fruit from from a fairly short but well-lived life.
0: We also mentioned that Zwingli had a different view on the Lord's Supper than Luther. Can you tell us a little bit about what he believed and how he disagreed with Luther?
3: Yeah, sure. So um, in general, I think this is a helpful question because it introduces some of the differences between Luther and Zwingli more broadly. So Luther was, I I think, fair to say, a little bit more steeped in the traditions and the customs of the Roman Catholic Church, a less, um, maybe a more reluctant reformer than Zwingli was, who was a little bit more ambitious and and aggressive uh, in terms of the Reformation. So, Zwingli is less interested in the Roman Catholic view uh, than than Luther is. And so Zwingli is sometimes says, said to have held what we might call a memorialistic view of the Lord's Supper, that um, the Lord's Supper is, is merely a memorial, sort of like a reminder, almost as if you would put a post-it note on your desk to try to remember something that you're going to do later. You see that post-it note and you remember to do the thing. And so, maybe that's an exaggeration, but that's a little bit how, how Zwingli viewed the Lord's Supper. He didn't view it as a means of grace, but uh, as a testimony of his faith in Christ and a reminder of Christ's works for him. Um, for Luther, Christ was physically present in the bread and the wine, a little bit like how heat is present in a glowing coal. And so it's obviously a complicated matter, but I think there's a few things that we can say about it. Uh, First, um, I think to his discredit, Zwingli believed that Jesus' physical body is of little importance to the believer. And uh, so he, for, for example, latched on to John 6, verse 63, which says, "...the flesh profits nothing." And he sees that to mean even the body, the flesh of Christ profits nothing. Well, I I think we would disagree with that. We need the whole Christ. We need his divinity, his humanity. Um, The Athanasian Creed speaks of the humanity of Christ as both his rational soul and human flesh. And so we need the human flesh of Christ. And so maybe Zwingli downplayed Uh, too much the importance of the actual body of Jesus Christ. We need that body to give us life in our body as well. Um, But second, Zwingli recognized that, so this to his credit, Zwingli recognized that believers do actually commune with Christ in the meal. That there is a sort of, that there's, there's, Instead of Christ being present with believers physically, he at least acknowledged that we're present with Christ in some way in the meal. In a similar way to what Colossians three verse one says about the believer, uh, that verse says, um, "You have been raised with Christ." And so that Paul says that, speaking to people who have not literally, bodily been raised with Christ, who are still in the flesh, but he says, "You you have actually, really, truly been raised." with Christ and so you should set your affections on the things of Christ uh, for example and so Zwingli says Christ is with us in the supper sort of in that way this this real but spiritual union that we have with Christ in the meal and then i think a third thing that we should say about Zwingli is that his view of the supper near the end of his life uh, was shifting away from the position of the of the Anabaptist uh, this memorialistic view and i think closer toward the understanding of Luther um, I think you might have mentioned a meeting that Zwingli and Luther were—I uh, uh, w- I would say—invited to, but it was by a—it was an invitation by a prince, and so it was more like um, uh, being told to come to this meeting. So, boys, work it out is basically what uh, this prince was saying, um, and the prince was right because here's—you got two brilliant reformers saying basically the same thing, but sort of fighting with each other with their with their pen and paper. And so uh, they're invited to this, this colloquy at Marburg in 1529. And basically, it's like the prince says, go to your rooms until you figure this out, and then play, learn to play nice together, and then you can come out. Um, and, and the Marburg Colloquy was a bit of a failure. I mean, it didn't produce the unity that the prince was hoping for. They did agree, however, to 14 out of 15 points of Christian theology. So they're basically seeing the Christian faith in a similar way, but the Lord's Supper was a sticking point. They couldn't, they couldn't agree on the Lord's Supper. And yet they agreed to this statement. The sacrament of the altar is the sacrament of the very body and blessed uh, and very blood of Jesus Christ, and that the spiritual eating of this body and blood is especially necessary to every true Christian. So they 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 Zwingli came to believe that the Lord's Supper is, is vital and necessary uh, for the believer. It's more than just a reminder, there's something real happening beneficially to his soul. So who knows what would have happened if Zwingli had lived longer and and come under the influence of other theologians more. But I do think there's good movement uh, near the end of his life toward a position um, that at least acknowledges uh, that something is happening to us, for, uh, that God is feeding us with Christ, his body and blood, um, not physically by eating it, but through faith uh, in, in Christ himself.
1: So this kind of relates to your last point, but when they met up with each other, uh, I know that they had the same ideas about grace and salvation. Well, Zwingli had the same ideas about that as Luther did, but he never read Luther. Is that true?
3: Well, it's probably not true. Uh, certainly not by 1529, it's not true. Um, but this perception that, that Zwingli wants Uh, people to have of him that he had come to these conclusions about grace and the sufficiency of Christ on his own apart from the help of Luther that perception was very important for Zwingli we have to remember that um, after after the very beginning of the year in 1521 Martin Luther is excommunicated uh, from the Roman Catholic Church so he's literally the arch heretic of the predominant church in the German-speaking land, and so it was definitely not in Zwingli's favor to be seen as a Lutheran, and so he's, um, p- perhaps a little unfairly, he distances himself from Luther. He uh, So throughout his life, as you suggest, he vehemently maintained that the Lord led him into reforms before Luther was well-known in Switzerland, and so um, I, I think it's fair to say that Zwingli felt the need to exaggerate his disassociation from Luther for uh, political reasons. Um, So certainly he did read Luther. uh, But how early did he read Luther? That's a question that's worth considering. Uh, Many scholars date the start of the Reformation in Switzerland to 1516. So that's a year ahead of the German Reformation. There's really nothing that that, uh, Zwingli would have read or profited from by Luther prior to 1516. And so in in some ways uh Zwingli does come to reformed ideas independently of Luther. At least early on, there's no evidence that he's carefully studied Luther's writings prior to 1521. So he, he so but that ought not surprise us. In other words, if if we believe as as Protestants, as reformers that um that The Protestant Reformation really is just a recovery of biblical doctrine. Then the fact that there's overlap between what Luther discovers and what Zwingli discovers at around the same time is not that surprising. Um, Add to that the fact that uh, around the you know the 15 teens and 1520s, the the time for Reformation was ripe in the in the roman catholic world there had been uh forerunners of the reformation making gains people were uh uneasy with decisions coming out of rome and and growingly growing increasingly uh so and and so what what you have in zwingli is is basically he begins his career as as a biblical humanist but he transitions to becoming a, a biblical theologian um for a lot of reasons and and they're not all owing to Luther there are circumstances in Zurich there's uh, yes the development in Luther his own reading of the bible his reading of the church fathers who shared a lot of the same views as Luther and Zwingli and then other contemporary literature not just Luther but but others and so yes uh Luther um exaggerates his his uh non-reliance on luther uh there was some drawing from luther but probably not very early on in Zwingli's ministry
1: so uh about your books on Zwingli, i know that you've written one that's for adults and one for children can you explain them a little bit more
3: yeah, sure. The children's book is in the Christian-focused Trailblazers series, which you may know about. It's a wonderful series with, with uh, dozens and dozens of books in it. Um, that book is suggested for elementary to middle or early high school, uh, so roughly from 8 to 14. Younger kids will have the book read to them, and older kids will read it themselves. It, it's definitely more conversational than the Bite-Sized Biographies book that I've written for adults. Um and and I think that conversational tone uh, is uh uh makes it one of my favorite books that I've written. Um I've imagined the dialogue between Zwingli and his friends and Luther and his wife and children and so on. Uh, but it's ba- the dialogue is based on substantial research. So I think it's realistic. It was it was definitely a fun book to write. I I wrote the book uh in about 2015 when my oldest child, our son, was about 10 years old. And so he was right in the audience age that I was writing for. And so I had, for example, um, I remember I'd sometimes be downstairs at our house writing the book, and I'd come up during lunch or other breaks, and I'd I'd want to read to my son some of what I had written to see if he liked it or see if, if it made sense to him. And I remember at one point, uh, I read a paragraph or a page or something, and, and Asher said, Dad, I don't, think that makes i don't think that makes much sense could you you know you got to make that more clear and i said well let me explain it to you and so i proceeded to explain what i meant by it and he said he said dad uh you know you're not going to have the opportunity to explain uh to readers if you don't do it in writing you you have to change what you've written and so he was exactly right um anyway so it it was a fun process uh I think I was able to put a lot more emotion into the children's book by the addition of dialogue and projecting the thoughts and feelings of the characters. Um, but I, I, so the the Christian focus book is is for younger readers. The evangelical press book, I I do think it's it would be accessible to uh, teenagers who. Uh, Well, I guess it depends on on, on your reading level. Um, It's longer, 38,000 words or so compared to 29,000. So not tremendously longer, Uh, but it is part of a series that is meant to be readable by ordinary people who enjoy reading. So there's definitely differences, but there's overlap between them as well, of course.
0: I've read about uh, Swingley's wife, Anna, who was a great supporter uh, to Swingley during the Reformation in Zurich, Switzerland. Do you talk about her in your books?
3: I do. um, I I talk about her quite a bit more in the bite sized biography book because there isn't an abundance of information on her, um, which is not surprising. It's really surprising that we know anything about almost anybody from history. I mean, I was just reading a a biography on William Shakespeare and uh, one of the most popular people in England in the late 16th century. And we know very very little about him. We know th- almost nothing about here where he was on any single day of his life. And so I, I just say that it's not surprising that we don't know too much about Anna. But in the children's book, I was able to give her a bigger place because we imagine dialogue and uh, have a, take a little bit more a little bit more liberties there in terms of the discussion. Um, but we do know some things about her. We know that she was a member of the church that Zwingli pastored in Zurich. So she had the. Uh, uh interesting awkward uh situation of dating her pastor <laughs> but but it was far more awkward for her in her day because you have to remember that Zwingli is a priest even even after there's a, begun a drift from the Roman Catholic church and priesthood he still he's still a priest and um so Anna's a widow a member of uh his church that he pastors as you you mentioned had um uh, children from her previous marriage. Um, eventually they start noticing each other and they marry in 1522 but they marry secretly because again, Zwingli's a priest, he couldn't marry. He um he was he was developing a more biblical understanding of marriage. He had been meeting with other priests talking about uh the need to marry and their understanding that. The Bible doesn't forbid marriage even to pastors. And so uh, along the lines of what you mentioned earlier about the affair of the sausages, if Scripture doesn't forbid something, then it shouldn't be forbidden uh, to uh, to one person by another. And so they, uh, some of the priests get together and write a letter to their higher-ups to ask for permission to marry. And that isn't... Granted, uh, and it doesn't look like it's going to be granted. And so they they do finally. So they marry in secret in 1522. They finally do uh, uh, have a more public, open um, reception in 1524. Um, so they're married. They they seem to have a very good life together. There's evidence that as Wingley's working on his translation of the German Bible, he'd bring proof pages home to his wife to have her read them and offer her impressions of how understandable the the, the the German is of his translation. She would do like many uh, good Christian wives do, keep their husbands from getting into too much trouble by being too risky or dangerous or foolish. She try to protect him and make sure that he was rested and well-fed and take care of their guests and all the things that, that godly women do. So their, their marriage seems to be a loving one. Um, there just isn't a, a tremendous amount of actual uh, uh, evidence about about her person, her personal life.
2: I was wondering, since we've been talking about Zwingli, what is your favorite story about Zwingli's life?
3: Well, I think one is you've you've mentioned uh, the affair of the sausages. It's um, it's 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 interesting. I mean, it, you wouldn't think of of. Uh, of eating sausages as being a big deal that wouldn't it wouldn't put people in jail it wouldn't uh, get get people it wouldn't force a minister to write uh to write a sermon and publish a, a book booklet about it but of course as you mentioned I think it was it was eaten during Lent and in at that time the Roman Catholic Church forbade the eating of 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 meat during Lent and. Um, Zwingli, interestingly, I think, as you mentioned, he doesn't actually eat the sausages at the event. I think maybe out of sensitivity to his public position, maybe maybe demonstrating some caution and wisdom. Um, but he certainly steps in to defend those who had eaten the sausages because he says they haven't broken a crime of God. And so you shouldn't say they've broken a crime according to man either. And so interestingly, Zwingli preaches a sermon. Uh, after this event, lauding the believers' liberty from the doctrines of men. And that sermon itself was uh was illegal because the city had earlier banned controversial preaching. And so uh and, and Zwingli had done a pretty good job of trying to respect that ban against controversial preaching. But he finally realized this is controversial, but I can't avoid it. And I think we would recognize as well that um even though in our churches today, we don't strive to be controversial or to, you know, constantly be exciting people or am, animating people uh, against those of other positions. There are situations that we that we just naturally bump up against in life and in the Bible uh, that will be controversial. And we have to speak to those things, not just ministers, but um, kids at school or kids in their in their social lives. You you uh we, we don't strive to be controversial, but like Zwingli, when the time demands it, we have to be controversial. So he was. And in time, this also contributed to reformation in the city.
2: Can you explain why Zwingli went to war? And also, was that a religious war that he went to?
3: Yes, uh, this is a very important question, because one of the few things that people can say about Zwingli, if they don't know too much about him, is that he was a warrior and that he died in battle and that that assumption is only partly true he did die in battle but he was not a warrior and uh, he wasn't a deliberate fighter he he did participate in war on several occasions not just the war that uh, in which he lost his life in 1531 um but but he goes to battle for different reasons than people might assume. So so first of all, it's interesting that Zwingli actually rose to popularity and uh, notoriety through his early preaching against the practice that was common at his time of Swiss men selling out their military services to other leaders. So he preached against mercenary soldiering. So the Swiss were known as good warriors and whether it was the Pope or some other leader, they would hire Swiss men to go fight for them in battles that really didn't belong to them. It wasn't to defend their homeland or to you know, defend their honor or anything like that. And so Zwingli preaches against this. He says, he says look, soldiering um, may be necessary at times, but don't sell yourself out to be a soldier. There are other occupations that you could take up. Uh, fighting foreign wars uh, creates multiple social problems. It violates the spirit of Christianity, and so on. So, interestingly, Zungle actually becomes uh, well known not for his fighting, but for his fighting against fighting, for his writing against fighting. So he's not—he um, was—he he was not a pacifist. Uh, So he wasn't against war, but he was certainly against unnecessary fighting. Uh, And then later in his life, he writes a pamphlet to one of the Swiss states on the evils of warfare. He encouraged his parishioners to take up more constructive occupations um, while, of course, uh, allowing them to defend their families, defend their territories against foreign invaders and so on. So he's not against war, but he says, make sure that you have a good reason to go to war. And then, um, of course, the, the complicating factor here is that he himself does go to war, uh, but he goes in the capacity of a pastor and a, as a chaplain. And so essentially, what you have in Switzerland at this time, certainly in, in Zurich and in the places that he had been previously, uh, was there there was no standing army. So it's a volunteer army, or it's a it's an army made up of the citizens that go to war when necessary, as needed. And so, Zwingli would would wish that there was no war. But when his men are going off to fight, he realizes he can't stay home. Uh, he needs to go with his soldiers. He needs to encourage them. He needs to be a chaplain to pray for them, to uh, to help them through their fears and confess their sins, perhaps as they're about to go to their death. And so, he uh, he does go to war. He does die in battle, and and ironically the the last battle that he goes to in which he dies he actually does argue for so he argues to the to the Zurich council to go to war but he does so as an alternative to um the other plan of the city council which was to continue an embargo uh against the other states that were more catholic so the city council was withholding food and other materials from these other catholic states and zwingli says this is cowardly if we're going to you know if we need to assert our rights here let's do it not by starving ordinary citizens but by going into a, a full uh full full warfare um and so so yes it, it's interesting you know i i had the privilege of going to zurich as i was researching one of these books and you go into the city square of zurich and there's a picture of of Zwingli holding a Bible in one hand and a, and a long sword in the other. And it sort of gives the impression that that was his life, that he, you know, was reading the Bible in one hand and fighting battles with a sword in the other hand. It, it really isn't accurate. It really just is a symbol, I think, perhaps of, of his death.
1: So uh, I, I know you've written other books for children. So could you list them for us? And if you have a favorite,
3: Sure. So four of my children's books are part of a series on the reformed confessions. And so Faithfulness Under Fire is the story of Guido de Bray, uh, who wrote the Be- uh, Belgic Confession. So it's about his life and that confession. The Quest for Comfort is the story of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Glory of Grace is the story of the Synod and Canons of Dort. And Contending for the Faith is the story of the Westminster Assembly. I wrote that book with Dr. Joel Beakey. Um, I also wrote a uh, church history coloring book called A Colorful Past. Uh so there's at least one coloring sheet on church figures from every century of the New Testament church age, from the Apostle Paul to Machin. And um so that's I I uh I think that's a helpful book in the sense that it it tries to tell the story of the New Testament church age in in brief, of course, but through the lives of these characters that young people can color and you won't get too many chances in your life to color a a person being burned at the stake. And so uh, this is, this is a rare book in that sense. Uh, And then finally, my, my uh, best day of the week is a book about the Lord's day and about the beauty of worship, uh, even for children, trying to walk through young readers uh, about what Sunday is for and how we honor the Lord. And it's probably my favorite book of all my children's book. It, 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 Took about a dozen years to get from the idea to early drafts to uh, publisher rejections and finally acceptance to finally a finished book. And so in that sense, it has a lot of memories for me. And and, uh, so we wrote it for young children, which my children were very young when we started when I started working on the book. And then they got a little older by the time the book was published. But I think the artwork's fun. The theme is important. So, um, yeah.
1: Yeah, I've I've uh, I've heard of that Sunday book. I can see why it could be important, especially to younger kids who don't understand why they're going to church.
3: Yeah, no, you're exactly right, Linus. We we want uh, we want to know um, what we what we ought to believe, but also why. And so there's questions in the book that little children would ask and. You know, we rec- I recognize that even in the book, there's some habits, some Saturday night habits, and some Lord's Day habits that are not going to be the same in every family. But we, we, we ought to communicate to our children. Our children ought to ask good questions. Why do we do this, Mom? Why do we do this, Dad? And and uh, so that way, we're 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 informed about what we're doing uh, rather than just going through motions.
1: So unfortunately, our time is coming to an end, and. I wish it didn't have to, because this has been very interesting. But we have two questions that we ask all of our guests. The first is, how did you become interested in church history? And if you could meet anyone from the time of the Reformation, who would it be?
3: Well, those are fun questions. I'll be short with them. Um, I, I've always been interested in history, uh, even as a, from a younger age. But I, As I mentioned, I didn't grow up in a family or congregation where church history was studied. It was sort of something that was overlooked in the curriculum of of christian families so but i started probably like mrs carr i started writing about church history because of a perceived need in my own congregation uh we i was pastoring in my first church and in my second church as well uh, a congregation that's historical we value the insights of those who have gone before us we teach a historical faith and so as i taught through the reformed confessions i wanted our children to have pictures in their minds that offer a setting for the truths that we're teaching uh, that we're teaching. And so um, I, I'm thankful that it has benefited, not only the local church, but also the, the churches outside of that church. And also adults have said, uh, you know, there's a lot of things I didn't know about our, the history of our confessions that you were trying to teach to our children. And and then the other question, who would I like to meet from the reformation time? That's a really hard one. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful to meet, uh, meet all of them one day but but since since I've written more about Zwingli uh than than the others I would probably enjoy meeting him I I could tell Zwingli um I've been to the village you grew up in and I've walked through your log cabin and into the bedroom that you slept in and so uh just that that connection of kind of seeing the the mountains behind his cabin that he and his brothers would go up to watch cattle and sheep when he, they were younger. And uh, later in Zurich was able to sneak into his pulpit and uh, into the study that he worked in next to the church. Uh, so just that personal connection would uh, would make me want to meet Zwingli.
0: Reverend Buchenstein, we are so thankful that you decided to spend this time with us and also your expertise on Zwingli. We are very thankful for you. And listeners, if you did visit our website, kidstartchurchhistory.org, you'll find a link where you can Enter a Drawing for a Free Book. This time, we are giving away Reverend Bookerstein's book, or Zwingli, Shepherd Warrior, where you can find more about this great reformer. While you're on our website, check out our past episodes, special news, recommended readings, and more. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Christian and Linus, I am Trinity. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.